Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. There is no initiation without a death involved in it. And we are so, again, self-oriented. I cling to everything and I hold on tight as if the loss of that pattern might put me in a place of, of not being able to control or manage my world which is terrifying when you're basically trying to fit in and get approved of. You don't want to lose control, but initiation's all about that. Hi, my name is Mark Groves, and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts, where I get to explore, alongside you, every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Mark Groves Podcast. Today I have returning guest... You don't know this, which is a sign of um, being good. <laughs> I was going to say a sign of being good at stalking is when the person you're stalking doesn't know you're stalking them. You are, I would say, the most powerful voice in my life in the last three years. And I've just learned so much from you. And just through you sharing your message and putting it into your audio courses, just has such a profound impact on me and my relationship with depth and grief and what I previously might have labeled as darkness and then shied away from that, but now embracing that feeling with such, uh, there's such love for it. And so for everyone listening who's like, who is it? Who is it? It's uh, Francis Weller. So welcome back. Thank you, Mark. It's very good to be back with you. Well, the last time we spoke, we explored the subject of going into the darkness. And we did touch on the idea of initiations. And I, I think one of the most powerful, or, or I guess, uh, shifts in terms of how I see life's most painful events or life events in general now is that I see them through that lens of, oh, I'm being served something for me to create from it. And I remember a line from your audio series, Alchemy of Initiation, which everyone needs to listen to. In it, you talk about how 
alchemy doesn't care about the alchemist. Like that the material doesn't care, essentially doesn't care about your feelings. It cares what you become. Can you speak more to that? Because whenever I hear that line, there's a resonance in my soul where I'm like, oh, yeah, like it's, it's, there's a truth to it. Well, we, we began with the premise that initiation is not optional, right? That um, you don't get to pick and choose whether or not you're going to go through some ordeals in your lifetime. And so in the absence of a formal initiation, soul finds ways to take the material of our life and utilize that as the raw substance for ripening us, changing us, deepening us. But as all true initiations go, it doesn't really care about you personally. This isn't a personal development course. It's not a self-improvement program. It is a an encounter with the, with the soul's requirements to shape you into something worthy of being in this world, you know, to show up, to participate, to engage, to help to hold a living culture together. That's why initiations were there in the first place. Again, it wasn't to make you a better you. It was to prepare you to take your place in the world as a member of a living culture. And living cultures require healthy individuals. Healthy individuals require living culture. That beautiful synergy that existed for thousands, hundreds of thousands of years has all but disappeared now. So now we're living with you know, self-centered modes of being, and the culture is decaying, and the planet is decaying as a consequence. So to go back to your question or your, your invitation there, um, what comes into our life is not there to make you a self-improved human being. It is there to cook you, to work you. The material is there for you to help ripen into a fully mature human being, which takes a long time. It doesn't happen because you're, you know, you've reached puberty, or it doesn't happen because you now have a driver's license, or it requires a lot of deep soul work. And soul, fortunately, keeps pro- providing us with the work, with the material to. Um, keep us engaged for a lifetime. Where do you think the separation began? If there is, I guess, a delineation where we stopped seeing the challenges of our lives. You know, we went to the idea of like, this is happening to me. You know, we got into the like, why always me, all that kind of stuff. And where do you think there was this shift of seeing life's challenges from being this invitation to expansion into the let's say, soul's greatest expression of our potential to something to be avoided or something that is, it's just fate. You know what I mean? Like, do you think there was a historical shift? Well, there was a kind of an epical shift away from community-based, place-based, culture-based living. And that demise happened for multiple reasons. Um, But what we ended up moving toward was a was more of a reliance on individualism. And I'm talking primarily about white Western culture. There's many cultures on the planet that, that have not followed this pathway. But individualism itself is kind of a um, a process that evokes emptiness in us. We don't feel connected to a larger body. We don't feel connected to the planet. We don't feel connected to the watershed. We don't feel connected to the commons. We feel separate, and that separate self is basically empty. And so we have become the largest consumptive culture on the planet. And we also have you know, focused so much on 
filling up that emptiness with specialness, with self-improvement, with power, with privilege, with wealth, material gain, with rank. These are the values of the culture. But if you looked at them from a soul's perspective, these are the symptoms of the loss of culture. You know what I'm yeah. saying? You know, these things that we're, that we're yeah. pursuing are actually symptoms of a deep and profound loss. You know, our original identity was shaped through multiple means by incarnation, by family, by community, by initiation into clan, by participation in the ongoing cosmos. That's who you were. That was, that was your identity. Well, we've lost cosmos. we lost clan. We really don't have community. Families are pretty much fragmented for the most part. And we're usually just left with me. I am my own, you know, everything. And the soul cannot live that way. So we have moved from a soul-focused communal base to a self-focus. And that self is profoundly empty. It lacks that entangled sense of identity with salmon and bear and, you know, sunrise and all those things that this, the deep soul knows is that I am totally entangled with everything. Now I am a singular isolated cell bouncing off of other single isolated cells trying to you know fashion some sense of meaning out of a life that feels basically as one of my teachers said yeah you you climb the ladder of success only to find that it was leaning against the wrong wall you know so when we when we even even if we accomplish the goals of, of the culture it's meaningless why do why do we keep needing more you know, billionaires wanting more you know there's the culture wanting more that emptiness is so pernicious and pervasive that uh, it is the single most damaging thing. I call it at the heart of all our sorrows is this issue. Again, white, industrial, Western, technological, capitalistic, individualistic culture. This is at the heart of all our sorrows. And then it's now exported as well. It begins to feed into how we deal with, with race issues, with gender issues, with economic issues, with land issues with you know, all of that kind of toxifying those territories by, by export. You're putting words to something that I remember the first time I heard you speak about cultures that live from the salmon, like the indigenous people who that's how they survive is they eat the salmon. And because of that, their relationship, you know, they gather water from a stream. So of course their relationship to the salmon in the stream is very different than someone who goes and buys their water in a bottle or gets it from a tap or gets it from. So, you know, one person is really invested in the systems that keep them alive. And the other is invested in the connection to the species and the animals and the nature and the earth. And I, when I heard you express that, it gave language to a grief that I had not known I had, really. I mean, it was always there, but I didn't, when you labeled it, I did feel this, it was almost like a sense of jealousy or envy of like, oh yeah, like no wonder they fight for it so much more than I do. I wish I was more connected to, you know, whatever it was and whatever it is. So when you talk about the the sorrows, is that part of what you mean? Oh, absolutely. That's that's a fundamental part of it. You know, when we when we shifted to an individualistic ground, that uh, self-interested ground, we lost all kinds of intimacies. There's a beautiful passage I think I may have shared by Paul Shepard, who was a he called himself a human biologist, 
looking at our own evolutionary story and uh, what were we shaped for and what are we actually living? And, but he was being interviewed once, and I forget the question, but his response was, the grief and sense of loss that we often attribute to a failure in our personality is actually a feeling of emptiness where a beautiful and strange otherness was meant to be encountered. So just think about that. When we stop talking to salmon, when we stop talking to wren and meadowlark, and when we stop speaking to the trees, we begin to feel that emptiness. I mean, there's that emptiness again. Shepard's also talking about that. It's actually an emptiness where a beautiful and strange otherness should have been encountered. We're supposed to be in conversation with the living world as a participant. And this is what you know, initiation practices, they were meant to break us open to the widest possible identity so that I wasn't protecting the salmon out of an altruism, but out of a sense of affinity. That's my body in fish form. I'm their body in upright walking form. You know, that that kinship relationship was profound. And there wasn't a sense of, you know, so much of that separate separation but a sense of mysteriously entangled existences. That's why the cave paintings are so powerful. They, they're depicting these beings of grandeur, and they weren't human paintings very often. They were mostly of the beings that they were around, sacramental. So yes, it's a profound sense of grief that we carry by basically reducing our conversation to one species. Yeah, that's interesting, especially because that becomes... You know, there's so much language in the psychological world, especially in social media's conversation of psychology about narcissism. And uh, it's interesting when we're within a culture of narcissism and then we wonder why we're attracted to narcissists. You know, <laughs> like it's a, it's the, the irony is not lost upon me. For people listening who maybe not be familiar with the word initiation, maybe we could start with defining that and, and then exploring how we might know we've found ourselves in one. And before we even do that, and maybe this is just part of your answer, I'm wondering, is there a, a line between like a life's, you know, challenge and an initiation or are all life challenges initiations? I think any significant encounter that alters your sense of being in the world has the potential for being initiatory. A divorce, a death of someone close, um, an illness, a deep depression, you know, whatever it is that you encounter, even falling in love as a way of unraveling an old identity, hopefully. That's the, I mean, these are all possibilities. There is no guarantee that you're ever going to get through an initiation. The invitations are there always from psyche, from soul, to take whatever the encounter is and to digest that in terms of a radical alteration in being. But as I said in the series, you know, everything can be laid out in front of you and you can still miss the bus. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. The work has to be engaged. In other words, whatever the event that happens in your life, like I say, whether it's a divorce or a death or whatever, I, I'm not there just to simply endure that experience, but to have it undo me. And I have to participate in that process of disintegration. All initiatory events have as one of its foundational elements, death. Something must die. 
an old identity, an old pattern, an old fixation, an old strategy. There is no initiation without a death involved in it. And we are so, again, self-oriented. I cling to everything and I hold on tight as if the loss of that pattern might put me in a place of, of not being able to control or manage my world, which is terrifying when you're basically trying to fit in and get approved of. You don't want to lose control. But initiation's all about that. <laughs> yeah, the initiation's like, you don't want to lose control? We're going to keep serving you more invitations to lose control. It seems to me like not accepting your initiation is very much a monetizable thing in that if I don't step towards which whatever challenge I'm having in my life, whatever skill set's being invited to being learned, whatever is being invited to die, maybe an addiction or something, a pattern of behavior, if I don't accept that invitation, then in my experience, and I'm curious if you have language to this, when I look back when I didn't accept those invitations, there was an unconscious knowing that the invitation was left open. Like it was sitting there like, whenever you're ready, like you want to do that? You ready? And that's when I don't drink anymore, but that's when I might find the bottom of a pint, you know, that, well, a few pints, you know, and, and it would just be sitting there waiting for me. Is there a term or a, in the language of initiation, is there a, a, something to be said about the gnawing open invitation that has yet to be accepted? There's a term that means something has been precipitated and you are not participating in that. And so you never arrive in the new territory. And that term is liminoid. It's like an unfinished initiation or a suspended initiation. Something has rocked your world, but rather than going through the process of disintegration and re-emergence, re we backpedal and grasp onto old strategies of surviving and old patterns, and we reinforce them even. We might drink more or, you know, we, we won't allow ourselves the process of going through that process of change. I mean, three things happen in any true initiation. There's a there's a radical severance from the world that you once knew. Like when that cancer diagnosis is given, you've left that old world. You're no longer living in a healthy, I have no worries about my longevity, and suddenly I'm now in this other world. There's a radical alteration in your sense of identity. I'm no longer who I thought I was. And there is a profound realization that I can never go back to the world that was. Now, in that disrupted initiation. You try and go back to the world that was. You try to reclaim that. And the medical system and I think psychological systems are complicit in that. We're going to get you back to where you were before this happened. Well, what a waste. You're going to waste a good heart attack. You're going to waste a good cancer diagnosis. You're going to waste a good divorce. You're going to. These things are not meant to take you back to where you were. They're meant to escort you into something radically altered. But we don't have a framework for that. We don't have a psychological framework for it. We don't have a mythological framework for it. All we're left with is that fear of loss, that I won't be who I was, and I've built my whole house around that, that story of who I was. We don't know because we don't have an imaginal framework for the way that we can see life's initiatory moments. That's why I did that series, was to try to give it a different context to understanding what is inevitable in our lifetime and how to participate with it.
Yeah, in a lot of ways, I feel like when I first listened to that series, Kylie and I had broken up, and she had recommended it to me. And Smart woman. Yeah, <laughs> very smart, very smart. It actually then, because it was so profound what I was learning, I invited a group of friends of mine, male friends, to start a men's group to review Alchemy of Initiation. So Alchemy of Initiation is actually the birth of the men's group I'm part of too. And us going through it together really solidified this idea of when a community can go through something and see each person's experiences as this wealth of wisdom, not just for the individual, but more so to the collective, to the group, and then our families, our friends, you know, how we make our way through the world, the way we speak, the way we write, the way we just be. That what I noticed was I didn't have, and I know a lot of your work also centers around grief too as well. And, you know, because it's also part of the initiation aspect. And I found that I was being invited to feel so many things I hadn't felt, these sadnesses, these, but what shifted for me was that I had never looked at grief as, and now I'm like, man, grief to me might be the most potent vehicle for transformation. And it's, it's a strange relationship that I've developed with it now where there's such a sense of love in the feeling. Like there's such, yeah, just a richness. Like I think of the soil, I think of the forest now. I think it, it, so many things have shifted. Do you think that one of, and I'm curious if there, what others are, but is one of the rate limiting steps or rate limiting experiences of moving through initiations, the inability to be with the grief that comes with, you know, the death, the, the birth, the life you had, the, who you were, because we seem to not be able to process grief very well as a culture. I think that's certainly a factor because, again, what happens typically in a um, confrontational experience with loss of any kind is that you're required to face it alone. And in the absence of a holding space or a communal space for that grief, we get overwhelmed by it. We are terrified by the grief. So rather than seeing grief as an expression of losing around things I've loved or an effect of something that's been taken or disappeared in my world, all we encounter really is the emotional weight of it and the fear of what ha will happen if I enter that territory. If I go into that room, I will disappear. I will, I will be submerged under the gravity and weight of that grief. So we have this very tenuous, at best, relationship to sorrow. And again, another reason why it's become so central to my work is that there is no initiation, there is no soul work without grief work. And I don't think there's going to be much of a world without grief work. Because what the grief is also, as I've written, is such a profound solvent that keeps the heart soft, and it keeps us in relationship to the wider field of the world. So when we, when we deny grief, the heart has to harden. One of my ideas is that in order for grief to keep moving, it has to be kept warm. So I have to bring my affection to it, my interest, my curiosity, my, my time, my... Uh, effort has to go into being with the sorrows that are there. Otherwise, this will turn cold. And when if it turns cold, it will congeal and harden and there will be no movement. And that takes us again out of the current of life and the current of my own electricity and also being current. 
to the life that I'm being asked to live. What's on the other side, or maybe even within that, that step in and through the initiation? You know, like what's possible from there? And <laughs> do they ever stop? <laughs> do they do they ever stop? Uh, no, they don't. But what happens along these progressions of initiations is that we become thinner and thinner in the sense of uh, of my affixion, my uh, fixation on my identity. Every initiation that comes along releases some part of my narrative until I remember reading Jung's autobiography at the very end of his life in his early 80s was writing in the back of his book about him not really knowing who he was anymore. Was he a fern? Was he a cloud? You know, he was beginning to feel that what does happen, I think, is that process of beginning to be less identified with my current fiction. So these initiations are sheddings. They're, they're a kind of um, molting that allows something more soulful to step forward and less personal. And the soul is ultimately deeply rooted in the living fabric of the world, the anima mundi, the soul of the world. The word soul seems to not have been part of the conversation of the Western, why develop, you know, like all the language you were using before. Well, I guess it's it's hard to know which came first, but is it through the way that we sort of extract everything at an unlimited pace that we cannot actually be connected to soul at the same time? So as we're continuing to extract, we're experiencing this longing, this grief. Do you think it's in that? Well, we extract because of the loss of soul. Soul loss was was to traditional people the the worst condition you could be under, because when you lose soul, you lose enchantment, you lose vitality, you lose life force, you lose voice, you lose you lose potency, and you lose that sense of participation and engagement with the living world. So, I could say that there's a line from James Hillman. He said, "The world and the gods." are dead or alive, according to the condition of our souls. So given that statement, which I think is true, we're looking at the world and the gods, or we could say the, the sacred. The condition of the world and the condition of the sacred right now are, are showing signs of soul loss. In other words, the, the reflection is that the condition of our souls is not good. We have basically abandoned soul, and we have kind of um, idealized the self. But again, if we go back to our earlier part of this conversation, that self is basically empty. And so there is that sense of extraction, constant extraction. I need more. I need more. I want, I deserve more. One of the things I remember writing uh, around initiation and soul, basically, is that initiation and soul lead us more to an experience of entanglement rather than entitlement, more towards responsibilities than rights. And if you look at the language of culture right now, it's all about entitlement and rights. My rights, my rights. Well, what about your responsibilities to the larger body? My entitlements, well, what about your entanglements with the larger body? So when you lose soul, when you lose these soul practices, which initiation is, is profoundly a soul practice, a cultural soul practice, when you lose that language and you lose that imagination, you are basically reduced to selfhood. Nothing wrong with self, but self in service to something rather than self only in service to itself. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Mana. Now look, we all know it's pretty much impossible to get everything we need nutritionally from diet alone today. And that's due to a lot of the farming practices, fertilizers, all that stuff. And even though we might have a healthy and varied diet, we still may not get all the minerals and nutrients that we need. This product, Mana, which I love, solves this problem through their all-in-one supplement that's made entirely from nature. It combines the wisdom and practice of ancient medicine with modern-day science and innovation. It combines some of the highest quality minerals, amino, fulvic, and humic acids, and nutrients gathered from some of the highest and lowest points on the planet, the mountains and the sea, all to provide a comprehensive enhanced mineral matrix. Now, the two main active ingredients in mana are shilajit and ocean plasma. One is black, one is white, one is plant-based, and one is ocean-based, yin and yang. Now, shilajit is a natural substance. It's found mainly in the Himalayas. It's been used in Ayurvedic medicine for 5,000 years to help maintain equilibrium in the body. Clinical studies have shown that shilajit has been proven to increase strength, endurance, and prevent illness. Now, ormus, or ocean plasma, has many regenerative and healing properties and has been used for thousands of years. The benefits of mana are insane. Shilajit and ormus, in addition to fulvic and humic acid, marine minerals, amino acids, protein, nootropics, triterpenes, magnesium, potassium, sulfur, calcium, sodium, and 88 trace minerals, they can help boost cognitive function, improve focus and memory, boost energy levels, provide fast recovery post-workout, enhance your libido and stamina, support testosterone production, and enhance immunity. The list obviously goes on and on. So I've been taking mana every day for the last three months now. I love it. I've been actually noticed an increase in not just my energy levels, but also I have an aura ring and I've been tracking my HRV and my HRV has gone up in the last three months significantly by an average of 20 points. And that's even though we've just had a kid, which is crazy. So if this all sounds like you want to try it, which I'm guessing it does, and you're looking to supercharge your body, restore balance with this all-in-one solution, check out Mana. Visit manavitality.com. That's M-A-N-N-A-V-I-T-A-L-Y-T-Y.com. Use the code MARK20 for 20% off. Go get it now, manavitality.com. There seems to be a large cultural conversation that I'm, maybe I'm sensing it because I'm around other people and who have similar feelings, but also maybe the algorithms (laughs) feeding me it. But I really get this sense that there is a desperation almost, to return back to farm, back to community, back to getting your own chickens, you know. I've seen so many people talking about that, this craving of returning. And am I in an echo chamber? Are you you in the same echo chamber? Are you seeing this too? Uh, In variations, you know, certainly to people searching for community, absolutely. And the various expressions of that. It's as if we're seeing the um, the emptiness of that, what I call secondary satisfactions, you know, the pursuit of power and wealth and rank and how that they just basically, like any true addiction, they just keep reinforcing the same territory, you know, an addict, you know, they have more than what they need of what they don't need. You know, they just want more of it constantly. So when that, when the bankruptcy of that begins to be self-evident, through your own confrontations, again, usually with loss or crisis or defeat or something, you come back to what the primary satisfactions look like, like sharing food, like singing together, like grieving together, like growing food together. These are the primary satisfactions. These are the ones that shaped us over 300,000 years, roughly, of our species' existence, is that 
this is what created basically a good psychic foundation are these primary satisfactions. Sitting under the stars at night, sharing stories around the fire, uh, saying thank you together ritually. A rich and sensuous and erotic life in relationship to the to the green world and also to the human world. So these are the things that satisfied us. And so it's, it's not surprising to see this kind of uh, a return back to what it is that actually has meaning and value and depth in our lives. Because the other ones are, are clearly leading to our destruction, which is a good, it's a good move to see people becoming more attentive to what it is the soul truly desires. How do you see technology impacting this? That's a tricky one. On one hand... <laughs> I know we're using technology. Yeah, I mean, on right one now, hand, no. um, we're able to reach so many more people than I've ever been able to reach you know, in, in my imagination growing up. At the same time, there's a kind of a built-in insulation and separation that becomes absorbing. My friend Maladoma Some once said, you have to be careful what you associate with because over time you'll begin to match its rhythm. So we spend so much time on our phones and on these devices and we begin to match its rhythm, which is a deadening rhythm. So we lose touch with the actual world by too much dependence on this. So can we use it? Absolutely. Is there a danger? Absolutely. You know, um, where we begin to live virtually rather than actually, you know, where we begin to live two-dimensionally. And I think this is, a, this is a big factor when it comes to children nowadays, is the absorption into this machinery has become almost thorough that they lose the actual world. And now we have this whole new symptoms of attention deficit disorder. Well, it's actually the wrong kind of attention. What's what the deficit is the attention to the actual world, to frogs and salamanders and caterpillars and dirt and you know feathers and the actual world is being lost. There was this amazing book called Landmarks by um, Robert McFarlane. He wrote eight years ago. And in it, he shared these words that he's been gathering over a decade, old words like blinter. It's an old Scottish word that speaks to the, the, the quality of starlight on a, on a winter's night. You know, and all these words that had to do with the sensual, erotic relationship to the world. And then he went on from there and said, and then the standard dictionary, whatever, Oxford Dictionary for Children, has begun to take out words like alder and Raven and, you know, they're taking out words of the world and replacing them with broadband and chat room. And so the actual world is, is disappearing, even as if they're saying, well, that doesn't really matter anymore. The children, their attention is now going to be on this world, on the technological world. Now, there's no denying that, that their attention has been riveted into this machinery, but it's kind of telling the words that are basically being silenced. The language that's disappearing is the language of the world. And what will that mean for this next few generations when the world is actually what is in peril? What if we lose the language of conversation with the world? How do we recommune with that world? You know, that's, that's, that's really the danger we're in right now with technology. Yeah, I can see that there's this desire to live in a virtual world rather than shape the one we're in you know, to escape 
this to escape our, you know, as you were talking about, our attention issues, our anxieties, not realizing that so often, which I, I love how you said that, it's it's the wrong kind of attention. It's a deficit of a connection to what we are, you know, our, our bodies, our souls, our cells are used to being connected to the salmon, the water, the trees, the soil. And it's almost like we try to nurture that by watching planet earth or by watching, you know, videos of other people on vacation, you know, not realizing that if we just shut our phone off or whatever it is, we could just walk out the door and there's magic you know, forest bathing, it's funny how, I, I find it funny, but not funny, how science proves things that are actually ancient and obvious, you know, like forest bathing is great for your nervous system. It's like, yeah, duh, you know, but it's almost like we have, when you start to put in a language what you're saying, I think it allows people to identify the longings that they have. Like it certainly served me in that way that the longing lived there, but I didn't know it was a longing because it was being served by addictions and by things, buying things or accumulating or whatever it is, getting status, getting likes, getting ego. And then you say something and I'm like, oh yeah, like yes, the other day I was walking up some steps and a caterpillar walked in front of me and I hadn't seen a caterpillar in quite some time. Like he was furry, had a little red on him and I... I sat down and just watched him cross. And I was just in awe. And this guy walked by me and he was kind of like, what are you doing? I was like, man, there's a caterpillar right here. And he's like, cool, like, sure. But man, I was so just witnessing him and just thinking about his world. And it was just like such an easy moment of presence. And I have to give you credit because so much of your work is the reason that I that I make my way through the world that way now. So in gratitude to you. Well, thank you. But you bring up another point around this technology is our addiction to speed, you know, and technology is based on how fast it goes. You know, you want you want the latest cell phone, you want the latest technology in order to, because you, you don't want to wait a millisecond for something to happen. You text somebody, well, they haven't gotten back. It's been five minutes. They haven't gotten back to me yet. But what you're talking about sitting there with the caterpillar is geologic speed. You're talking about soul speed. That rhythm is, again, what we evolved with over hundreds of thousands, millions of years, actually, was the rhythm of body, the, the rhythm of breath, the rhythm of touch, the rhythm of you know being in relationship to that. So to have a soulful life and to be present to the world, we have to ratchet our, our speed back to the speed of soul, to the speed of life. And that takes time. And when everything is kind of regimented on around how fast it's going to happen, that's a hard piece to keep navigating. But I think it's so crucial. So I'm glad you had a time with a slow teacher. You know, the caterpillar is a wonderful teacher about slowness and steadiness and just watching it move. Yeah, great teacher. I know you talk about the planet and the circumstances that we're in. And before we hit record, you were using the language of rough initiation. Can you speak more to that? Well, genuine initiation that's overseen by the community, by the elders, by the rituals, it's called, that's what I call a contained encounter with death, because all initiations bring us to the threshold where something must die. And when the elders and everyone's there, they help to provide a containment field 
where the heat of initiation can be generated with a certain preciseness to help break open and, and escort the young human being into that next phase. What we're in is an uncontained encounter with death. That is a rough initiation. That means that the elements are all there. The encounter with death is certainly there. Species depletion, um, refugees, um, our own lives, you know, are certainly uh, not guaranteed, whether that's from mass shootings or through, you know, the depletions of watersheds or whatever. The death factor is there, but the containment field is missing. So there's nothing holding us in the midst of this experience of, of rough initiation. That's why I think what we have to do is come back into some meaningful ground of being together to explore what is happening, talk about it, grieve together, do the rituals together, you know, see if we can make some small gestures of repair, of regeneration, of renewal. But we also need to know how to sit quietly together and listen. I mean, the arrogance of this time is that we think we're going to be able to figure our way through this time. I don't think so. I mean, there might be some you know, good ideas along the way, but what we have to do is become exceedingly humble at this time and just get to our knees and, and sit quietly together and listen. What is the earth trying to say to us in this rough initiation? We are being initiated. But like I said earlier this hour, there's no guarantee we're going to make it. No initiation is guaranteed. But the precise conditions are also here right now for us to, to undergo something profound. The emergence of planetary community is a possibility. How likely? I don't know. This long dark that we're in is going to be at least one and possibly two generations before we see where we're heading. I'm not going to see the end of it. I, I know I won't be. I won't see where we are heading by the time I leave here. But that being said, the initiations I've gone through have required me to show up and plant seeds now for whoever is standing here in 25, 30, 70 years from now. They have to, they have to feel like something happened here that gave them a message that it matters, that they mattered. In my imagination, whatever is down the road in, well, as they used to say in the Iroquois Confederacy, seven generations from now, that they were being dreamt of, they were being thought of. We were making choices and actions based on their well-being, not on mine, not on yours. But we are definitely in the midst of a rough initiative. Yeah, to think from that perspective of to get out of self, which not to minimize someone's survival stresses that they might have today, but to get also to hold the meta to, to get out of the perspective of self and what moves am I making today to shape this world. And when you talk about collective initiations and being contained, so being in containers of community, family that are looking, yeah, like what might be the sort of characteristics of that because I wonder if we can get to that, then one I would imagine must embody those within themselves too, in order to provide them to other. So, is, am I explaining that right? So you're saying, what are the conditions? Yeah, like for for a community to be able to hold an initiation in a way that is contained, 
versus uncontained versus, you know, as you're talking about rough, like not planned, not that we don't have perhaps enough people on the planet that have the skill set to be able to navigate this in a way that's contained. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, essentially you are because you, you don't, in a sense, make up initiation rites. They are kind of dreamt into being. It's as if each locale, each local community of traditional cultures were given instructions from the dreaming earth how to shape a real human being. What were the ordeals they had to go through? What was the process by which this child was ripened into somebody who knew their place in the world? You know, what were the practices? So the particular choreography may be different from culture to culture, but the intention, the arc of direction is the same. They're always aiming towards cooking that soul sufficiently. So it's, it's, it's hard right now in the absence of elders, in the absence of initiated human beings. What do we do? Well, we take our encounters, those four sources I, I mentioned in this series of kind of confrontation with this thing I call predator, our times of experiences of wounds and traumas and losses, our times of descent into the underworld and our encounters around love, that within those four valences are possibilities of being ripened enough to begin to show up for the generations that follow so that we begin to gather together and even begin just by saying something's changing in you and we see it. We don't exactly know what to do about it, but we're here to witness it. That's, that's a beginning and then we begin to listen to hear well what are the what are the ritual practices that would help move this person even more deeply into their core of who they are essentially being asked to be in this world how do we listen to a, a an emergent soul like a, like that caterpillar how do we listen to that whose destiny is quite different than crawling across a step its destiny is to fly you know, and so each human being has a particular calling. And how can we pay a close enough attention to that so that we coax and encourage rather than stuff in information, but we actually are drawing out, which was the original meaning of the word education. Educare means to, to draw forth, to call out. We've turned it into a process of stuffing in facts and information, but initiation is meant to call out that innate genius, the, the inherent gift that a person carries for the world, not just to get a career, but to have a calling, to feel that you are necessary and needed here. So we begin, I think, just by simply acknowledging that to one another, to see in the behaviors of a young person and to comment on them. I see something in you that looks like this, and we need that. We need to see that part of you emerge and show up in the world. It may not be, again, like a, a job getter, but it's a life calling that's important. Yeah, I'd not thought about life callings till you know, I was in my late 20s and I read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl because I hadn't, my education, which that the word meaning to take out or to, uh, you know, learn from is so different than to stuff in. And I feel like those 27 years really stuffed in that my purpose was to become a husband and make money to be able to take care of a family. And while there are 
parts of that message that are fine. What was absent of that was even this possibility that I had a calling or a purpose or because as soon as I started to even think about that, I started to grieve the whole life I'd already lived that was not exploring that or within that. And what continues to happen through the curiosity of exploring all these things is that there is a connection to so much more when, as you said, when you find a place, like it helps you establish what your place is in the world that we need you. Like we need you in that thing. And then all of a sudden now there's a connection. I have a role and my role is to do whatever. And that means that people need me, which means I need to be here and I need to get through this initiation too. And I need to create communities that say, you know, we're not going to get rid of you because you made a mistake. We're actually going to learn from you. I mean, that to me is so obviously beautiful, but so radical and different and I think of all the people I've met having done relational stuff for a long time now who've been through breakups and or divorces or questioned faith and lost everybody, which I'm like, man, that's that's not unconditional love. Of course, it's a deep initiation into finding community that says, we want what you have to teach. We want who you are. Yeah, the um, thinness of, a, of approval is quite painful. And in a culture of individualism, there's very little permission to be an individual. So there's tremendous emphasis on conformity and not stepping outside of the approval box by which, in other words, you don't challenge my own complicity to living under some kind of conscribed way of of being. If you change, you disrupt my own collusion to buy into the collective story of what it looks like to be a human being right now. And even if the collusion is, or the, the, the image is incredibly limiting because our, our ground of belonging is so thin, we'll pay the price. We'll, you know, we'll gladly sacrifice our own being, our own sovereignty for the sake of fitting in. But that's another piece of the initiation. At some point, Mark, I have to stop looking for places of belonging and become a place of belonging. That's a real mark of someone who has matured beyond consistent seeking out of something that's going to take care of and reassure me. Nothing wrong with that. Please hear that. We all need to know that we belong. But at some point, there has to be some larger pull in us to become that place where the belonging can be offered to others. That's really the mark of somebody who's carrying that initiation out into the world. Gosh, if we just achieved that individually, you know, and then (laughs) created a group of epic humans that walk and make their way through the world with that level of openness, compassion, curiosity, humility, that sense of unconditional love. Because for, as you're saying, like for so many of us, and it's not anyone's fault, it's not what's modeled. And so you know, we then have to learn how to model it through learning how to give it to ourselves and then give it away. And being able to be with peers who, if I'm facing a challenge, say, how can we support you? Like there's no, there's no correlation to my worth. You know, there's a correlation to my growth. There's a correlation to knowing I'm not alone. And it's 
although I feel like that is becoming more common for people in their experience in that we are, you know, for the first time in quite a few generations, more largely starting to ask questions like, why do I love the way I love? Why do I show up the way I do? Why am I reactive? Why am I so insensitive? You know, and while technology ratchets up the extraction of attention, I do also feel like there is, it's almost like when attention's being extracted at that level, that is a, inadvertently there will be a massive descent because you become so disconnected from anything human. And I don't know what the answer is to that, but I feel like so many of us are swimming in the void of having companies who monetize our attention and not having our connection and our attention placed on things like caterpillars. What do you think? I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the ingredients that I keep talking about is the need to have tremendous self-compassion at this time. That um, to be alive right now, particularly in a capitalistic culture, is to feel you know marginalized and disenfranchised from soul and from community. And we have to see our condition not as a reflection of personal failure or inadequacy or shame, but the fact that the conditions that I required to become human were basically um, non non-existent. So can I hold my experience with tremendous compassion and in so doing, allow myself to express what it's been like to live in this, the grief of that, the sense of loneliness, the feelings of emptiness, all of these things that are, are kind of composite factors of this conditioning that we've, been, that we've been through. I finally have permission to speak that and share that. And you begin to see how many other people feel exactly the same way. At our grief rituals, they're filled with people who are just dealing with the shame, the loneliness, solitary confinement of their experience, and coming back into the world again, came through that conduit, through that rivulet of sorrow. That's the way they made their way back into the world. And that sorrow could only be expressed once the, the conditions of warmth were applied, of compassion, that my losses mattered. The situation I'm facing matters. What I need matters. And when we can grieve these things, the heart begins to crack open again, and we find our way back into the, the places of community and participation and engagement and belonging. And that's where a lot of the repair begins to happen. I'm curious. Uh, this is a question that I've been wanting to ask every guest now, and it is, what is the greatest piece, no pressure, <laughs> what is the greatest piece of advice that you have for someone who wants to improve how they relate to others in the world? I kind of just shared that, really to soften and befriend their own life and to recognize that their condition doesn't depend on perfection. It doesn't depend on having it all together. It doesn't depend on them being on a continuous assignment of self-improvement. It's much more of a confessional thing than it is an, an accomplishment thing. Jung once said to confess ourselves fallible and human. And until we can do that, an impenetrable wall shuts us out from the living experience of being, in his language, a man among men. But until we can confess that, until we can say how lonely we feel or how much grief I carry, that seems to be like that's the threshold moment is one of confession, not in a religious sense, but 
to just be able to acknowledge what it is we've been asked to carry in our secret inside flesh, as Hillman would say, you know, that I have to carry this so privately, which keeps me separate from you. But if we can both be willing to say, this is the truth of what we both share, now we've entered the commons of the soul, and then things can begin to move. So that's, that's kind of what I would say is the most essential piece. And I leave on Sunday to, wow. to work with the Cancer Help Program. Again, I do that twice a year. And on Saturday with that group, I, 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 I share with them 10 root practices for optimizing the healing response of body and soul to their cancer. And I say, you can do these practices in any order you want. You, know, you might find some that don't speak to you. But number one is number one. And number one is self-compassion. There is no healing path without self-compassion. Our agendas for self-improvement are often driven by self-hatred. You know, we hate parts of ourselves. We come to therapy, we, we do all this self-improvement work to somehow get rid of or fix these parts of us. And what they're yearning for is some sense of welcome. Another one of the lines that I just love of James Hillman, he says, people go to therapy not so much to have what is broken fixed, but to have what is broken blessed. That's a beautiful shift, to bless the wounds, to bless the places of our injury and our suffering, but to let go of that heroic, muscular, constant effort to improve, to fix. That's almost, it's frequently based on self-hatred. I know it was for me. I hated these parts of me that limped and felt inadequate and ashamed and I hated them, wanted to get rid of them in the worst possible way. But obviously I failed. They have become what has made me most human. When I was listening to your story in Alchemy of Initiation, having um, just had a son, when I was listening, I was re-listening to it again recently. And the story where you talk about how you told your friends you were not doing great and they they decided to tie you to four stakes in the ground. And I haven't had a group of friends do that in response to that. But I'm like, those are good friends. But when your friend uses the line, or was it a friend, who, I think, who said, we... We've had you for 40 years, now we get your son. Oh, I get shivers even hearing that now, because the having a son now recontextualize that line. I, I heard it totally differently. I could feel the passion in it previously, but it was a very different sense. And it reminded me of how important it is to find some sort of rudder or thing of importance that can drive transformation. You know, that's like, here's the North Star that I'm moving towards. And I know for a lot of people, that's things like not wanting to pass along what they've been through or their wounds or their patterns. And for others, it's to end toxic things, you know, to, to begin to enrich their lives and to step towards what is possible. I honestly can't say enough about just my experience of your courage to put into language the things you've been through. And uh, that story is so potent. I mean, was that a, the pivotal shift in your transformation? Yeah. I, again, it began in confession. I had to tell them I couldn't do this anymore. I, 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 my life felt completely empty and flat and deadened. and But that event on December 2nd, 1996, that's my birthday now. That's the day I feel like I arrived here on the planet. My life prior to that moment and after that moment are so radically different. But I would say it wasn't, what it did is it gave me permission to begin to let go of all of that ideology of improvement. 
and you know to begin to, to live not so much as someone special but as an ordinary man it's ordinary to care about your community it's ordinary to show up for your family it's ordinary to make sure that the river is okay you know it's that's ordinary there's nothing special about it and you know implicit in a lot of our self improvement things is to make ourselves special better than you know so just giving up that fixation was so freeing just to become an ordinary man and to listen to what my soul wanted to express in the world and to live more from a, from a soul-centered reality than from a wounded boy reality and you know trying to find the right strategies for fitting in and for impressing the world so you would never find how badly I felt about myself. So yeah, that encounter was was utterly life-transforming for me. I think for everyone listening, I want to give a shout out again. Pick up Alchemy of Initiation. We'll put the link in the show notes because hearing Francis's story and him walk through uh, how to walk through an initiation, how to use the material of your life to become everything you can be, you know, and Francis, I'm always so honored with you coming on here. I really appreciate you. Thank you for taking the time and making the time. And uh, I hope we get to do this again. Well, I enjoyed it thoroughly, Mark. Good questions, good conversation, and again, blessings on this new arrival in your life. I hope uh, the journey of fatherhood is something that continues to work you in deeper and deeper ways. <laughs> it's certainly done that. It's done it with a worked me with less sleep too, which has been an initiation of sorts. But one Kylie and I are, you know, we're diving deep into. For the people listening, Francis, where can they find more of you? Uh, the best way is through the website, uh, francisweller.net. That's, that's my primary place where I, there's a place to sign up for the newsletter, which is, you know, sparse, but it, it does come up periodically. And we have some new things coming up in the fall. So if people are interested in grief work, uh, training. We're going to do doing a training uh, this starting in September, and it'll all be online. So some good things coming up. Awesome. Okay, well, we'll put all those links in the show notes. Thank you again for your time. Much appreciated. Take care. 